And, but I was really feeling like I had way more questions than answers. And I really wanted to understand the context of their lives. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Gail S. Fraser, author of the novel Song for the Widowmaker. I like consuming and reading historical fiction because you're learning something that has a basis in reality. Gail S. Fraser is a professor in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University, Toronto, Ontario, and conducts interdisciplinary research on extractive industries. She lives in Toronto with her husband, two cats, and occasional house guests. Today, I'll be talking to her about her debut novel, Song for the Widowmaker. Let's start with uh, your main characters, William and Mary. Uh, tell me about the circumstances of the time that they lived in that led them to leave Scotland. It, it was very difficult for, um, for people to find work. And what was very interesting about um, where Mary came from is that the women dominated the workforce. So they worked in the jute factories, and jute is burlap. And the industry hired women, presumably because they could pay them less. And, and it was really hard for men that were tradeless to find work. And so that was William's circumstance. He, he did graduate from high school. Scotland did you know, have um, an education act since 1872. So he did get, you know, was literate, and, um, but had no trade. And so it seemed like from what I could tell from the, the documents that I gathered that he really was kind of, you know, moving around, looking for work and just not being able to come up with really solid full-time work. So that's, that's really, it's, it was economic, economically driven migration. You mentioned jute, which is burlap. I admit that I had to Google it when I came across it in your novel. Um, can you tell us more about what a, a jute spinner is and, and also how you learned about it so you could describe it in the novel? Yeah. Um, so there were several different possible ways you could work with jute. They, even though they, they did have, um, Scotland did have an education act in 1872, they could, families could petition to have their children work part-time and they were called shifters. And so Mary's family, um, I know her sister from a population census document was a shifter. So presumably Mary also was a shifter. So these are young teenagers from like 10 um, to 15 and they would help with the spinners. So, but there are many different um, ways um, for people, women um, and children to be working. 
and spinners is um, a particular way to spin the rob fiber together and then it gets shipped off to the weavers and then jute bags were used to ship goods all over the world and also for sailing the sailing industry and so I learned a lot through this jute museum um, in Dundee and the it, it was amazing because they um, they have engineers um, mechanics who are still able to keep the machines running and so they're volunteers that just come in and the couple of times that I went this is it's called verdant works and it's in an original jute factory and but it's in a, it's an incredible museum and so I had a I had a on a quiet day a, a volunteer was there and he ran the machine for me and showed me how it worked and then I also read read a bunch of just um, documents about the industry. Yeah, that's really great that you can can go see that in a museum and and that they have I suppose. I don't know if you call them reenactors, but you know people that are still showing how it works. That's um, really fantastic. Yeah, it was it was so informative, and just going there for the first time. This is before I um, I was I had was still on the genealogical phase with the idea that I would be writing a novel, but um, it 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 was just completely fascinating to know that you know my great grandmother. And her sisters were working, and actually my great-great-grandmother were working in this in these factories. And so it really made it a very personal experience for me. Yeah, definitely. So William and Mary, they they immigrate to America. Uh, what are their impressions when they arrive in America? And can you also describe the journeys that they go through throughout the country? Yeah. I so William William goes first, and um, and and I should say a lot of the structure of the novel comes from work research that I did on on their on genealogy and and but it, the gaps. So I have very little on William and Mary. They are my great grandparent great grandparents, and um, and and I just had ended up having a lot of questions. Um, so I know that William entered into America before Mary. And he spent some time, which is a bit of a mystery, but we know that he, I, he spent some time in South Dakota. And then there's this little, a couple of sentences from a son of his that was quite elderly when he was interviewed about him going on this disastrous trip to Alaska. So I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure, create a story around that piece. And I spent a lot of time researching trains and um, which routes were up and running during certain time periods, because of course the train, the trains um, and train lines were continually being developed and laid down. So what might be a good a viable train route in 1905 was maybe not a good viable train route. And it didn't even exist in 1896. So trains featured uh, a lot of research on trains were featured, and of course, um, they were they were crossing them by steamship. So before they even arrived in New York, and both both Mary and William came through Ellis Island. So I I researched a lot of documents about what it was like to be um, an immigrant coming through Ellis Island and and the ships crossing the 
crossing on those steamships. And so it was a very different time period than what we might think of, you know, several decades earlier when when steamships weren't around. Speaking of museums, I was actually at Ellis Island earlier this year, and it is incredible. All the the, the information they have, the artifacts, the, the photographs, the documents, um, there's a lot, definitely a lot to learn there, and you need more than a day just to, to see it all. You know, I, I, I really want to go to Ellis Island, and, and what is remarkable is, is how much you can get by not having even been there. And so their online um, documents are incredible. And so I was able to find, you know, the original documents of, of the entries of, of William and then Mary and the, and the kids and um, the search engines search engines are really good. And just thinking about what it was like. So, so William came across and then um, he eventually goes back to Scotland, but that, but Mary comes across with the kids by herself. So she travels with three children that are all under five. And I mean, that in itself was just quite a feat. And, and her journey, of course, didn't stop in New York because she travels to South Dakota. So there's, so there's quite a bit of, um, of, of traveling and I'm sure interactions with people. And, and just arriving in New York City, though, must have been like quite an amazing thing, just because New York is even in 1903 was was a pretty amazing place to, to, um, experience. But when they get to South Dakota, it's a mining town and they, they moved to Leeds, South Dakota, which is just up the road from the notorious and infamous Deadwood, South Dakota. And it is the mine that the, all the gold that was found. So this is a homestake mine and this is now a very established mine. It's been around for 30 years. It's a big industrial complex that dominates the town. Um, so when Mary arrives in December of 1903, what she first hears is the stamp mills, which are um, breaking down the rock, and they are they are very loud, and they dominate um, the whole town, which is literally right next to the excavation point. So I think. I would imagine Mary's, or I did imagine Mary's first impressions are a bit, um, I don't know, maybe having some misgivings about uh, about where they've landed, but knowing that William has work and that's, that's very important. And so William does work in the homestake mine and in the novel, I, I never actually found any documents saying exactly what he was doing at the homestake mine but I had him working underground and, um, and people, while it was an established mine, it was, this is the, you know, early of 20th century mining was still a very, and actually today is still a very dangerous occupation, although it's much safer today than it was in 1903. And so Mary also experiences really for the first time and up close, what it would mean to lose William in a mining accident. And so when a miner dies and she's, and she's standing with all these other women waiting for the name of the miner who died to be announced, it really hits home to her what 
what the risk is being taken to have William be working full time. I want to talk a little bit more about um, what you mentioned in filling in the gaps. Uh, I'm always intrigued by academics who turn to fiction. And, um, you know, I can understand filling in the gaps of emotions and thoughts and those sorts of things. Did you find yourself having to fill in historical gaps as well? As you, as you said, you did some research on on the train and, and if the, the tracks were up and running or not. Um, was that, were, the, were there little elements there that you had to fill in and was that kind of maybe counterintuitive to you as an academic? Yeah, I, uh, yeah I'm glad you asked that question because there were moments where I just couldn't find the answer. So I really, my goal was to try and make it as accurate as possible. But there were, there were one in particular that I can think of was um, I wanted, I was assuming that the mine, the whole mining complex, so the underground piece, the above ground piece would shut down in Leeds, South Dakota, would shut down for Christmas day. And I just couldn't figure out whether that would happen or not. And so I just thought, well, you know, now I have to make it up. So I had it. Um, and this was, this was important because of this noise, um, which, which, which was based on the description of noise was based on a, a biography of a, of a, of a gentleman who lived there as a, as a boy during that time period. And he talked about not being able to hear a bird unless it was sitting on your shoulder. Um, so it was a very loud place. So I wanted to have this moment of what lead would be like if there was no stamp mills running. And, and that this was William's only day off for the year. He worked seven days a week all year long, except for Christmas day. And so I had this, um, I decided to, that the mine would shut down and it would be quiet and there, and the family would have this moment together. And then I was able to actually verify it afterwards, um, from a, from a, a woman, a, a biography of a woman who was married to a miner who described that for a different mine. But yeah, there were moments where, and it was actually quite freeing because I'm a scientist. I'm very fact, fact oriented. And so it was, that, that's what I loved about the creative writing piece. It's like, well, I don't know the answer to this. I can't find the answer to this. So therefore I just get to make it up. Yeah. I can imagine that would feel very freeing. So the book is called Song for the Widowmaker, and it's called Song for the Widowmaker for, for a reason. It's got a lot of music in there. Can you tell me about the music you included in the novel? Yeah, and uh, this was really fun. So I, I'm also a musician, and I, I was looking for, when I went to Scotland and Dundee, I was really in search of music and kind of a, a carryover. There was all this Irish immigration to Dundee for the jute work. And that's Mary's heritage is from Ireland. Um, and so I, I went in search of the music scene, kind of the, I, I've spent a lot of time in St. John's Newfoundland where there's, you just go into a bar in the middle of the day and there's these, you know, the fiddle players and the mandolin players, and they're just having these very informal jams. And I, and I couldn't find that. And so, but I imagined it actually existed. And so I created Mary's, um, father as I turned him into a musician and I found these uh, as I was doing library research in Dundee 
a librarian um, pointed out these broadsheets. And so these were essentially the words of the populace. They, um, people would write poems or songs and obviously not the notations, but um, they would write lyrics to songs and it would be published by the poet's box in Dundee weekly. And so it's like the words of these people that are no longer with us. And, and most of these are anonymous. And so it's, it was completely fascinating to me. And so I was able to find um, uh, excerpts from these lyrics that were matched the chapter somehow. And um, I just really loved that. And for the book launch, I, am, I have put um, three sets of lyrics to music. So in my book launch, I'm going to be playing some of these songs to music. Well, I think it's a really nice touch to the novel and, and kind of adds to the reading experience to be able to listen to some of that music while or, or after you, you read. Well, thank you. Yeah, I will put it up online so it, it'll be available. And it's nice because it's because they're so old or anonymous. There's no copyright issues. Sure. Um, I want to talk back up a little bit and talk again about the the immigrant struggle of William and Mary, which is obviously a centerpiece of the novel is the adversities and the dangers that they go through. But then in your author's note, you, the first thing you do is acknowledge that these settler colonialists are encroaching on tribal lands. Can you talk about why you decided to, to write that and the importance of it? Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that question. I, you know, I live on, um, uh, land that's um, indigenous land in Toronto, and and I think it was important. Um, it was important because I did try and tackle it a little bit in the novel, in in where Mary realizes that um, that the land they were living on, even though these were these are really poor people, they weren't owning property. They probably they never owned property. Um, but where Mary realizes that she's on land where people have been displaced and she doesn't know how to deal with that. Um, and, but, but it's a little bit of a um, kind of a, a struggle that I present in the novel. And I just, I think it's, it was important for me um, because because particularly for the Deadwood, which which is a more familiar with the the, the treaty um, aspect of Deadwood, where uh, the the local indigenous people were had a treaty, and then that treaty was um, ultimately withdrawn when um, or or violated when gold was found, and and so it, it, there's all these complicated and pretty dark histories. And, you know, this, my book doesn't really grapple with it, you know, full on, um, because I'm not probably the right person to do that. But so it, I felt like it was important in the acknowledgements to do just that, to just acknowledge that, that this is a settler story. And, um, and that there were people, indigenous people, on these places where William and Mary traveled to. 
and I primarily focused in my acknowledgments on lead the lead area in South Dakota and in Ely and um, in Nevada. But yeah, no, I just felt it was important to just say that straight up. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, we definitely don't want to lose these the the stories of of the settlers and and what they went through and built for us um, now today. But at the same time, I think you're right to acknowledge the colonial aspects of it, the imperial aspects of it, um, and the fact that yeah, those those treaties worked until somebody found resources and and then. And the land was just taken away, and it's really unfortunate. It's a legacy that um, it's important that that's acknowledged, so that we can kind of tear down that legacy. That's right. Yeah. Um, so you've already talked about traveling to Dundee. Uh, I'm curious about some other travel you did to whether it be South Dakota, Nevada, and maybe what you found there and what resources and help you were able to find when you did travel to do research for this novel. Yeah. Um, I had a really well-timed sabbatical, uh, in 2019. So it was all before the pandemic and, um, I was able to, so I went to Dundee and I also, um, my sister lives in, um, Minneapolis and I was able to go down to Minneapolis and we did a road trip to Leeds, South Dakota. And this is where our grandfather was born and neither one of us had actually been to Leed. We'd been to nearby areas, but not there. And there were two places in Leed. One was the Black Hills Mining Museum. That was just fantastic. And at the time you could just, it was, it was kind of out of season. So it was March. So we just called them and I booked us in. So it was just my sister and I in the museum and we got this um, tour um, by the, the volunteer that was working at the museum that was really, they had a little um, underground um, experience and it was underground enough to make my sister nervous. <laughs> but um, so that Black Hills Mining, Mining Museum was very useful um, and in understanding aspects about it. And then nearby, at like literally a half a block away was the open cut. So it was this great big, giant hole right next to lead in lead south dakota where where all the excavation occurred and then um the library at lead was also super useful in that i was able to find references to um a scottish group um a small scottish club called the stewart club and they um, there was a reference to a William Fraser that worked at, at the time that, that, that he was likely there. And so I, I wasn't able to for sure verify that it was the, my William Fraser, because it's obviously a very common name, but actually Scottish people were not in abundance in Leed. And so it was a pretty small group of people. And so the, so the library in Leed, and then we also nipped down and there's a great library in hot springs south dakota just south of there and um where there's this, a ton of genealogical um work that has been done by the local library that was also great to just look at and then i was also able to go um i was on a, my husband studies bees and he was going on a bee collecting trip in california and wanted me to come and i said only if we can go to nevada <laughs> So we were able to go to Ely, Nevada, and um, that was 
they, there's also a, um, a museum there, White Pine County Museum, that was very um, interesting. And they had records. And there's also a railroad museum there that they looked up some records for us. And they have a an old steam engine um, that is still running. And so when we were entering into lead, I'm uh, sorry, into Ely there, the, like the steam engine was running and it was just, it was so moving. Cause it, it, this is like the type of train that would be used in the time period that I was writing about. And I was just thrilled to see this train running. And then we drove up into the Hills. Um, so the town, the, the mining town that, uh, William and Mary end up going to no longer exists. And that's what was another, just as a side thing, that was also another fascinating piece about doing this story is that there's towns that no longer exist, um, that the trains were running through. And so Kimberly, you can still find it on the map, but there's no town there. And there's lots of mine tailings and you can just get a really a sense of the lay of the land. Um, where the mountains are and what they look like and um, and just kind of the, the layout of the town. So I was very lucky to really be able to go to all three main places where the characters go to. Yeah, it sounds quite fun. And, you know, how great, like I said before, that these, these museums are, are there. Unfortunately, you know, I know a lot of them here in the United States don't get quite enough funding. And uh, they took a hit during the, the pandemic, but they're such great resources and they have such, such valuable insight that, that you can't get from the internet. Yeah, and it's both museums, um, for, certainly for Lead and Ely, seem very volunteer-based. So it's, yeah, it's very important to support them. Let's talk about uh, your background a little bit more. You, you said you're a scientist. I believe you're a professor as well. So what took you down this path to, to fiction? Yeah, so many colleges. I study birds, and there's a couple little birds that show up in the book. But um, the I got interested in genealogy. Um, we didn't have, we only had like two very small stories about William and Mary. And I had done a bunch of genealogy and really kind of was able to fill out the family tree. And, but I was really feeling like I had way more questions than answers. And I really wanted to understand the context of their lives. And I've always loved history. History has always been a big part of my family. My mom got a, a you know, a, a degree in European history. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just very prominent in her family growing up. And and I just, and I love histor historical fiction as a, as a genre. So I, I read a lot of historical fiction and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and do this. And as a way to just really understand what their lives were like and what motivated some of these questions um, that I had uh, so try and find some answers. And so for one example, William and Mary's marriage certificate William identifies his mother as Christina Fraser. And her last name was not Fraser. She never got married. Her last name was McRae. 
And, and I was like, why did he do that? <laughs> I was like, why, why does he have that name? And it's, then and you know, so I had to create a narrative to answer that question. And, um, and you know, it was that because he was illegitimate, which I don't really like that word, but anyway, he was, uh, uh, she never got married. So he was, he had a father, but the father wasn't around. So I, yeah, I was intrigued by the format and I also like historical fiction. I like consuming and reading historical fiction because you're learning something that has a basis in reality. Um, even though there is this fictional aspect to it, that the, the, the types of historical fiction I really like, I feel like I'm learning something as I'm going along. And so, so as a, as a scientist, I, I, I like that format. I'm not big on just straight up um, biographies. Uh, I like I like the fiction format, kind of the narrative and this, a story that moves it along. And what's the process been like for you? Was your first draft a disaster? Yeah, it was a total um, was... disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I had some I had some great help. And I'll I'll tell you a funny um, a, a funny thing is that what the first a person that read my first draft, he said, you don't use contractions in your, in your, in your dialogue. And I'm like, oh no, you're right. I don't, because that's how I write in science, right? I, you never do can't or won't, or you always is cannot, would not, do not. And so, yeah, yeah so, so yeah, I've spent a lot of time on this. And I also, I had, I had to really um, get in deep on the emotional aspects of it. So what, what would be in, in trying to describe it? And I think my first draft, I, I didn't do due diligence on that at all. It was more them kind of just reacting to circumstances rather than kind of a, a character arc, understanding what their emotional trajectory would be. Well, I can speak from a, a similar perspective because my first graduate degree was as a master of arts in history and it was academic writing and my thesis like you said no contractions not a single one and there are lots of little things that need to change for fiction that it takes a while to get to get used to and to, and to understand yeah and i would say that in response to the the writing i went i went probably too far in the extreme in that I tried to have Mary and her two sisters, all of which were in Dundee and Dundee's really well known for this crazy accent, like way stronger than any other Scottish accent. And I, I actually wrote their dialogue, all of it with this Dundee accent. <laughs> and, but my, my readers were like, no, 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 you can't be doing this. This is like way, way too much. It's too much of a distraction. So then I kind of eased off on the, so just have a little bit of uh, yees and nays in there to continue on with the Scottish accent theme. Yeah, it is hard to, to capture dialect and to know just how far to go with it. So it's not too disruptive. That's right. Yeah, I learned that for sure. So yeah, it was it was, but it's been so much fun. Um, at not only the research, which I love because I'm, I, that's my orientation in life is research, but but just really kind of grappling with once you understand the context, what it must have been like for them 
to move the whole family and and for William to go from dyeing yarn to working in a mine. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a it was a dangerous occupation that he took up. Yeah, it's definitely quite a, a change. Well, I don't want to let you go without asking about your bibliography because you include that in the novel and that's something you don't often see in fiction novels, but it's something at History Through Fiction that we like to encourage and I think is important because the historical fiction author is doing just as much much research as the history author. So uh, tell me about including the bibliography. And I'm also curious, did anyone tell you, no, you can't include this in here? It won't work? Um, yeah, thank you for asking about that. I, you know, at one point I wanted to take it out, but my final editor said, no, I think you you have to leave it in. Um, and, and, and it was just more to take it out, just to shorten it, and I was going to put it on my website. But ultimately, I, of course, agreed with her. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was important because there were some really key documents that really helped me in, in the context and trying to really understand what life was like in these various places. And it, and it, and it was, it's almost like, you know, you need to have a bibliography because um, it's not like I've used their ideas, but I used um, their information. Um, and it helped structure the novel. So, yeah, it. I would love to see more of that um, in novels because it also allows people to go to these sources um, and and take a look at them as well. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of people out there that can relate to your background, your experience, maybe they've had their own great-grandparents come from Scotland. I think they'll find it really useful. Yeah, that's right. And and um, and I, uh, you know, there was a huge Scottish diaspora, huge, like a, a million, uh, one, an estimated 1.5 million people over 30 years left Scotland and went to all different places, of course, Canada, but also America and Australia and South South you know, in Africa, South Africa. Anyway, um, so I think there's, and a lot of people who also, whose parents worked in these industries in Scotland and the jute, the jute and linen weaving and stuff like that. So I would imagine um, that they would find these resources uh, very interesting. So what's, what's next for you? Are you working on some more historical fiction? I am. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally hooked. I am working on the next novel um, that is a continuation of uh, Mary and William, but it's focused on the next generation. Well, that sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm glad you're hooked, and I'm glad uh, we'll see another book coming out from you. Uh, congratulations uh, on this one, and thanks so much for, for taking time to talk with me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, Colin. It was great to talk to you, too.
so the the book is called Song of a Widowmaker, and it's for the, for the Widowmaker. I'm sorry, Song for the. Okay. I'll just say that again. So okay. I'll 